Once in the Wheel, a podcast where we will spend far too much time thinking out loud about Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time. I'm James Matthijs. And I'm David Arnold. Come join our exploration of the intricate weaves and tangled webs of our favorite 30-pound fantasy series. We'll trace the threads of Jordan's story and pull out the what's, why's, how's, and who's of his characters' interactions. Our task is to stitch together the ethics, politics, psychology, societal norms, and wool brain decision-making that, when woven together, create a multi-hued tapestry of humanity against the looming shadow of apocalypse. For people who watch the show, the first thing to know about Perrin is that he doesn't have a wife. I think the first thing people should know about who watch the show show about Perrin is that uh, you've not seen Perrin. Although they might at some point, who knows? Yeah, maybe at some point. But the Perrin you were introduced to in the show, not the Perrin of the books. No. Like, at all. I think he's shown inside of a forge at some point. Uh, Yeah, the forge where his wife works and he is not an apprentice. What? It's his wife's forge. What? Are you saying that show show Perrin is not a blacksmith's apprentice? Yep. At least I'm pretty sure he's not a blacksmith's apprentice. He might be like co-blacksmith or something. So yeah, there's a reason we don't talk about the show much, which is there's a lot yet to be decided, but so far it doesn't look pretty. They might be able to make a good show out of what they have. I don't see them making an accurate Wheel of Time ever off of what they've set up. Yeah. Which... You know, annoying for those of you who wanted a accurate wheel of time after all these years. But uh, what you gonna do? It's not like you could put together a cast and a production company and a group of actors who could faithfully carry it out. I mean, to be fair, I don't think you could purchase a live action wheel of time series that did it well. Although, like I keep saying, they do nail Moraine, which I think is really important. I've been listening to The Great Hunt as narrated by Rosamund Pike, and uh, if her season two Moraine doesn't talk like her audiobook Moraine, I'm going to be upset, because that would just be inconsistent. I can't have two adaptations of Moraine. Yeah, I've not listened to it at all, so I don't know. The the notion of an actress reading an audiobook for the character that she also plays in the series just struck me as a little funny. So yeah, uh, Perrin is apprentice to Meister Luhan, and... Mistress Luhan tends the house, although I think she does help out in the forge when her husband needs her to. It's just not explicitly done over about how much experience she has with it. But it is pointed out that she is a very large, strong woman. And you don't mess with her. Yeah, you definitely don't mess with her. Uh, one of Matt's first pranks that's mentioned in the books is messing with their dogs, and he's hiding from uh, both the Luhans, especially Mistress Luhan. And I think in their Trolloc attack, uh, she actually manages to kill one, or is like carrying around a giant cast iron skillet looking to kill one if there's any left over. These are kind of parents, surrogate parents. His parents aren't mentioned much. He's genuinely a good kid, like the other kids. He is a big guy, so he watches out for other people um, so he doesn't hurt them. He moves carefully and tries to think through things first. Specifically, it's not just that he's big, he's strong. And he's always been stronger than most of the kids his age. And then when he started working at Blacksmith's Forge, he just became beefy. Like you do. I think it's worth pointing out, though, because as you said, with uh, the Luhans being more of his parent figures than his parents are in the first book, because they're, they're mentioned a lot more. Um, the master-apprentice relationship back in medieval, early, early Revolution time was much more of a living arrangement than just a work arrangement. And you would generally go off and live with your master while you were his apprentice. And when you move on to Journeyman, you would actually, the reason they called it Journeyman was because you would go on a journey from where your master had taught you and travel and work somewhere else and expand your skill set. So Perrin at the start of the books is actually on a full career path. Hmm. That said, I wonder what Matt was planning to do. No, I don't wonder that because we're supposed to be talking about Perrin. That's the problem with Perrin is he makes me want to talk about everybody else. So especially first book Perrin, it's hard to see how he fits into the narrative as well. Because you have Rand who's leaving the narrative for most of it, but then being the point of view character, as you learn, he can channel and he's the dragon reborn. So obviously, the center point character. Matt is 
the prankster, uh, the adventurous one, he's the one who is stirring up issues that have to be resolved. Or as he gets the dagger, it is you know much more pivotal what he's going through. So of the three boys, Perrin falls by the wayside narratively, even though you get his POV and Rand's, but never Matt's in the first book. It still just doesn't make as big a impact on the story in book one, it feels. Although quickly, once you do start getting his POV, he moves on to having a bit of his extra story potential revealed with the introduction of the Wolf Brother aspect. Part of what separates himself from the other boys is at this point, Matt has nothing but like a trickster nature to kind of separate him out as a different character, like a different character class almost, right? Um and then like Rand is also a smart guy, but he's less uh he's less pranksterish and more sort of thoughtful. Well, not always thoughtful. And then Perrin is their sort of slow counterpoint. So I can see where Perrin represents kind of a more monolithic approach. Like Rand and Matt are both very dynamic characters, whereas Perrin pretty much stays himself in different environments. He tries to, and it's very much a as he's being written, as he is the large guy, as he is, he says that he is thought of as slower than the others. And when we get into his POV, you see that he is very methodical. And he is smart. He does notice things that other people don't. And he puts together what he knows into well-reasoned, logical conclusions. They get separated at Shadow Logoth, and Perrin falls into the river, surprises him across it, knows that Egwene went in and is swimming. And he's thinking and reasoning, and he's like, okay, Egwene is not as good of a swimmer as I am. Therefore, if I swam fully across the river, I would have made much better progress than she did. So she would have floated down the river further. So I'm going to go track that down based on what I know about her swimming speeds. And he's sitting there tracking and looking at hoof prints and stuff. And he's like, okay, well, the Trollocs have hooves, so I can't just, you know, follow those tracks because those might be Trollocs. But horses have horseshoes. Well, Trollocs might have horseshoes. Oh, look, that was a mark from Master Luhan's horseshoes that he puts on when he does the work. Therefore, that's a Two Rivers horse. Therefore, Bella. Therefore, Egwene. And so it's interesting to see how he puts it all together, but he does take his time to do it. And without access to that inner monologue and train of thought, he doesn't seem to be as on it as some of the other characters do. Not to mention, he's mostly detail-oriented for stuff and maybe, like, processes, he doesn't seem as methodically detail-oriented when it comes to other people. I would agree. He does seem to have a lot of blind spots when it comes to other people. He doesn't understand what makes them tick, necessarily. Whereas if you give him a watch and don't have time to study it, he would figure out how the watch ticks. Yeah, so uh, overall, coming away from book one, do you, do you remember what your take on Perrin was? As far as the character of Perrin in book one, nothing really stuck with me as being that cool. Especially when I read the first book, it was when I was, you know, young teenager. He just wasn't the cool guy. But that is him as a character, the wolf brother aspect. Eh, that was pretty cool. What were your thoughts on him? So I was hoping the wolf brother thing was sort of uh, a, a portal into. Like, I was hoping it would be the first sign of what would turn out to be a whole range of crazy abilities, which it kind of does later, but... Crazy abilities for Perrin related to the Wolf Brother thing, or just for the... Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, he's got golden eyes. I wonder what kind of crazy shit he's going to do next. Just being able to talk to the wolves uh, like that. And I guess the golden eyes made him so he could see in the dark a little better. So you get a little bit more wolf senses... And he could talk to the wolves. And for me, that was all I needed. Huh. I guess I didn't see it as ranking up there with being able to use the one power or, like, see the future. Oh, definitely not as useful as those two. But as far as what we had been given in the book, like I didn't, you know, without any hints as to the types of things you could get into with what the books go to, uh, I didn't see where that power could lead beyond what it was already presented as in the book with Elias, basically. And so I was thinking Perrin would just go be Elias 2.0. Ha! That's funny. Sort of, oh, you've got, you've got the ranger disease. You're, you're a ranger now. Basically. 
So the Wolf Brother aspect we probably talk about. Um, so first of all, nobody knows what a Wolf Brother is because the talent has been lost for so long that nobody's heard of it, or almost nobody's heard of it. And it's extremely rare. It's much more rare than the One Power. Basically, he's got golden eyes that help him to see in the dark. He doesn't exhibit the the smelling abilities yet for some time, does he? He starts having a better sense of smell. Like all of his all the senses you would normally associate with a wolf are heightened for him for the rest of the book. Ah. And they're in the ways he he's getting annoyed that there's not meat to eat because he's starting to want meat more. Uh he can see in the dark better, he can hear better, he can smell better. Plus, he can telepathically communicate with wolves. But it's kind of more complicated than that because, I mean, just take you or me, right? Let's say we suddenly discovered, oh, I can telepathically communicate with my dog. Well, your dog doesn't necessarily have a telepathic API that lends itself to reasonable or easy use of that function. You might just get like a vague sense of hunger from the dog all the time. And, oh, great, cool, I can communicate telepathically he's just telling me he's hungry all the time yeah so you do run into a bit of a translation error between the two and how they think but it's also as you say it's just a different mindset entirely conveniently the wolves are smart enough in the setting that they do have sapience and sentience which i always get freaking confused and i know they're two different things but are used interchangeably all right so uh, sapience means the ability to think, the capacity for intelligence, and the ability to acquire wisdom. Sentience means the ability to feel things, the ability to perceive things. So any living thing that has some degree of consciousness is sentient, including insects, lizards, dogs, dolphins, and human beings. But the element of sapience being able to think and acquire wisdom and stuff is currently limited to humans, I think. The grammarist.com. And until just now, I hadn't related it to it. But if you think of Homo sapiens and sapiens, it's kind of a human yep. chauvinistic term. That is actually where it, that's why it is, basically. Hey, we can think. So some research does show that uh, dolphins and whales are also kind of sapient in a similar way. But how are you going to prove that? That's kind of the issue, which is what is tapped into with the wolf brother aspect when they're able to telepathically communicate it does reveal that the wolves have a level of sapience which is convenient because otherwise you would get the classic you know even pixar did it with up you know the dog who's able to talk it's just talk talk squirrel <laughs> or as you know dog owners would be like did he say walk that sounded like walk maybe for a walk food walk <laughs> but anyway so yeah, yeah he's able to talk to the wolves telepathically and it is not exactly language there is like an auto translation happening in their heads where they'll have his name among the wolves is young bull and for us it's just the word young bull those two words for them it's a whole feeling and image and thought you have some very esoteric ones where a certain night of the year the right type of moon the right type of temperature and the wind blowing through it and it's you know that wind through the leaves is the person's name <laughs> type thing and it's the devil's name which honestly is almost cooler than the way we name each other which is kind of randomly yeah, there's a whole large trope i've seen in a lot of fantasy literature that i love and it is based on the power of naming and that humans generally even in fantasy settings where there are other types of creatures who are capable of thought or other magic users or stuff the drive of humans to name entities and individuals is given a power of its own so the fact that the wolves have a more encompassing naming aspect than the people do i thought was kind of interesting there's a term for what the wolves are describing in sort of philosophy of mind which is uh you may have heard it before uh qualia or qualia depending on how you want to say it which is sort of the prospect that Every human experience is its own unique thing that is comprised of all the the stuff your nervous system was experiencing at that time. Now, the people using Qualia use it to argue for all kinds of crazy stuff, but at its most basic level, you could say that the human and the wolf in 
the uh, wolf brother relationship are uh, communicating via qualia. So this sort of be like the the red I see is not necessarily the red you see. Therefore, my reality is slightly different than your reality. Taken to you know eleven. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like take that and then define your whole conscious experience at any given moment as a particular qualia. Okay, yeah, that'd be an interesting dive into you know alternate reality, parallel dimension type stuff. But it's everyone has their own created dimension in terms. Yeah. Anyway. I, trying to get esoteric on us <laughs> but also it kind of strikes to the heart of what language is right like what are we actually communicating with each other um when we talk because when Perrin talks to the wolves as mammalian creatures with social structures they do have a lot of these sort of qualia or words in common so they are able to communicate there's a there's a popular philosophy paper, not that any philosophy paper is popular, um, called uh, what it what it's like to be a bat, and basically it talks about you know bats live in this world of sonar and they don't see using light, so whatever they're experiencing has to be so radically different from what a human is experiencing that we could never tell what it's like to be a bat oh just i was trying to think because it's one of those like trying to conceptualize alien life and you know can we even conceptualize it or is it going to be so different that we just evades understanding which then it gets into some of the eldritch horror and greater old ones type stuff of you know just unknowable entities so like in Cthulian horror the kind of creature where merely communicating with it drives you insane that, but not necessarily communication drives you nuts. It's just you are literally unable to put yourself in the same frame of reference that this entity is coming from. It is so drastically different that our brains are incapable of creating an accurate projection of their existence and their thought processes. Thankfully, the wolves are much easier to talk to. Wolves and people have a lot in common. They have to hunt for their food sometimes. Uh at least people in the Wheel of Time do. You know, they mate, they learn stuff, they fight enemies, they operate in packs. Uh, the wolves are surprisingly strategic thinkers, we come to find out. It definitely plays off of the long bond in human history that we've shared with canines. And it is the domestication and use of dogs that let us pretty much evolve together. And they've shown that people and dogs respond differently to each other than we do to a lot of other creatures. And there's just been inherent changes that are making us, you know, dogs like people, people like dogs. Even if, you know, you take a puppy and a baby, put them together and they become friends more often than not. And that's just not something that necessarily happens with all creatures. Um, so that's fun to play with. And then the fact that the wolves share memory of other wolves, we don't find that out till later. We don't dig into how it, how that works, the mechanics of it, until later. But wolves know wolf history, and so the fact that there were more wolf brothers once upon a time that has died out and has started to come back, the wolves are like, "Oh, hey, it's a person who can do this. We didn't know there were any of you out there anymore. Not that, oh, hey, we never knew this existed. Whereas for people who are starting to run into any wolf brothers, it is not even a thing of legend anymore." It might even be where like the concept of werewolves came from. So on the wolf side, it's like, oh, that's a phone we never expected to ring again. Hi. Exactly. And they are much, much quicker to embrace a new wolf brother than the human might be to accept that they are a wolf brother. And wolves are also a lot more pragmatic and just accepting of things than people are, which with Perrin's tendency to overthink before he acts, is the blatant acceptance that wolves show for things so the thing with the wolf brother for Perrin, and i think it's playing through on multiple lines is that it is, creates a giant dichotomy in who his character is going to become because you have his nature of wanting to overthink everything put against the wolves accept things as they are and just deal you don't have to think through every step just look at what's in front of you and act on it and i think having Perrin be a blacksmith apprentice or working metal and 
the application of the technology they have in the setting is so requisite of human progress and it's juxtaposed by the primal nature aspect that man revisiting the wild and so all of his upbringing in the two rivers is instantly set at odds to everything that the wolf brother aspect represents sort of this uh slow careful long-term intentionality versus the visceral sort of all that is happening is right now of the wolves yeah and i think that Perrin, more so than a lot of other characters is a study in contrasts he is the big strong guy so he is the timid cautious person he sees a lot of detail so he's slower to act on it progress and people and men versus nature and stasis and wolves now, as we meet up with the Wolf Brothers, we meet up with Elias, who is a Wolf Brother, has been a Wolf Brother for many years, has a pack of wolves that he travels with, and the only people you ever see him interact with are tinkers, who are traveling people, also relegated to the outskirts of society. And those are the only people that he seems to be willing to talk to or talk about. And even then, he's standoffish and hesitant, and he's uncomfortable, and they're very, very loose and accepting setting so you can imagine him in a structured you know, city environment which does not go well for the character elias is representing yeah he's sort of comfortable being at the fringes of society i mean that kind of bridges us to the tinkers a little bit we didn't really talk about them much uh, they were an interesting kind of people because uh obviously they're sort of robert jordan's take on the traveling people and it's kind of a blend of you know, the Romani type or the Irish travelers. And it's just a general representation of that kind of group of a nomadic people in a generally agrarian and urbanized world where they don't have allegiances to nations. They travel as they see fit between locations. And it's just very different. It's pretty much the polar opposite of what you have amongst the two rivers folk who are the small town, you just want to be where we were born, marry someone who was born nearby, have kids where we were, and die next to the you know family graveyard. Yeah. It is as opposite of that type of mindset as you could have, because probably people do not have those roots. Their roots are purely to their group, and their group is able to go anywhere. They also follow the way of the leaf, which is, you haven't seen anything like it in the world yet when you meet them. And they they do explain that it is this non-interventionist sort of pacifist uh, philosophy. It's sort of a Taoism, like whatever happens is the way. I was wanting to ask if you had any larger philosophical movements that you think would tie into their way of thinking. The Jains or Jains, depending on how you want to say it. Like, they're extreme pacifists. Uh, they, the giant monks are known to brush the ground before them with a broom to avoid killing any ants or spiders that they might otherwise uh, step on. So as to pacifism, that's about as extreme as it gets. It's also sort of a, a theme in Buddhism is, like, everybody's suffering. Suffering is bad probably shouldn't inflict suffering on people or or animals uh, and they take it a step further of acknowledging that doing violence inflicts suffering on everyone involved including the person doing the violence so it is better to run away from someone to prevent them from doing violence than to confront them on it because if you confront them that gives them the opportunity to do more violence and hurt themselves as well and it really is at odds with everything we've seen so far, where they're running from, you know, Perrin and Egwene are running from Trollocs. They've just left Shadow Logoth. You know, it's inhuman monsters and unknowable things of evil that you have to oppose. And the Tinkers don't. They resist, but they do not oppose. Um, and we see later more about where they come from and how they interact. But it's an interesting, it's a very interesting element to put, especially in the first book, as we have this one of the closest things we get to a religion so far in the books as they're hunting for the song that they think will bring back the age of legends and the peaceful uh, paradise we used to have because you have the prophecies you have 
the belief in the light, the belief in the dark one, except it's for more people, it is a provable thing where you have the dark one influence the world. You have most of recorded history having evidence of people interacting with the dark one or the light. So it is more of a living religion than necessarily some of the more uh, theoretical or, uh, but basically for the monotheistic type religions where there is a deity present, but they don't manifest with provable evidence outside of like miracles, interpretations and stuff versus something like the Greeks where it's like, oh yeah, the gods are all up on Olympus and they routinely come down in various disguises and mess with people. And it's that level of interactivity with your religion. Oh, so like strong intervention versus uh, weak intervention versus no intervention. And while there is people who, you know, pray to the light or ask, you know, they try to escape the forces of the dark one by the light. And you have people who look to the light as a counter to the dark one, but they're not expecting, you know, the creator to show up and stop the dark one from doing something. But the tinkers have the, you know, the song that they're looking for. And they think that recovering the song will allow them to fix the world. They've established their whole group off of that because the leader of the band of tinkers is called the seeker because he's the seeker for the song. And it's a very ritualized thing they hold on to the closest we get to experiencing religion in the first book so don't get me wrong here i hate to do this but i think it may have been foretold um in that way the tinkers are much like bill and ted from bill and ted's excellent adventure i i was going to ask you how as i was focusing on bill and ted from bill and ted's excellent adventure and i'm like oh yeah it's not them from the adventure it's the the song that they must discover to become the wild stallions exactly so it's they're currently bill and ted they need to become the wild stallions exactly and the song may not exist in which case the world I is am, doomed i am annoyed that you brought that up and i think it justifies the need for this podcast existing damn it so <laughs> <laughs> so i just watched bill and ted face the music so that's that's what you get. I had been putting it off for about 10 years. I don't even know when it came out. But uh, uh like three years ago, I think it, it very much focused on them looking for the song. And I just happened to watch it recently. <laughs> and the way of the leaf is basically just be excellent to each other, which is where I thought you were going with it until I was like, oh, wait, the music. Damn it. <laughs> uh. Didn't mean to bring Bill and Ted into that, but it seemed like they belonged. I mean, to be fair, it was a very good movie. Bogus Adventure, not so great. <laughs> Nobody would have thought that we would grow up to, like, look on Keanu Reeves as an example of a good human being. Which all reports seem to say that he is. Or he's a vampire. Jury's still out. The ageless? He might be an IS Sedai, you never know. <laughs> okay, I also sidetracked myself. I apologize for that. I mean, I can't blame you seeing where it ended up. That that was good. I'd be annoyed for days about it. That was good. So Egwene and Perrin spend some time with the Tinkers, and Egwene's solution is to dance with them, and Perrin's solution is to look around untrustingly at all these people who say they would never do violence. And we touched upon this in the last episode, and we're talking about how Egwene is being presented from Perrin's POV versus what Egwene's internal POV would look like. And it's after they finished dancing and Aaron had been annoyed at her earlier. And she, as she's coming back, he tries to apologize. And she basically falls on him in tears. You know, like, please tell me that Rand and the others are okay. And it's obvious that, yes, she was embracing the tinker way of life for a bit. Yes, she was letting herself be swept up. But it was her way of dealing with her fear of what the others were going through. Meanwhile, Perrin has been sidetracked more so by what he's going through with the wolf brother aspect and figuring out how Elias and the tinkers will, as the two representations of how his world can go with Elias representing both the wolf aspect, but also the violence and world wariness that he shows versus the idealism and pacifism that the tinkers have. So he's caught up in that and not really thinking about the others as much. It's obvious from Egwene's reaction that she is, and is just masking it. Yeah. I think this is kind of where 
the storyline of the hammer versus the axe starts, isn't it? Kind of. It it's this whole section and it's multiple chapters of parent interacting with Elias, Egwene, the Tinkers, and eventually the White Cloaks that solidifies the hammer versus axe in his mind. And the axe being a weapon Master Luhan had made back in the two rivers for some wandering for a trader's merchant guard who refused to pay what they had agreed on. So Master Luhan kept the axe, gave it to Perrin uh, to defend himself with as they were going. Uh, actually, no, Perrin was practicing with it a bunch, and Master Luhan just gave it to him because he wasn't going to have any use for it. And so that was what Perrin brought along as his defense. And it becomes the... It's not a woodsman axe. It is a weapon versus the hammer, which the blacksmith hammer you can use to create. And even though hammers are effective weapons, it is not designed as a weapon. So yeah, it kicks off the whole, is he a man of violence or is he a man of peace and building? And, you know, what path is he going to go down? Is he going to follow the way of the hammer or the way of the axe? Or does he follow the way of the blacksmith or the way of the wolf is another way to put it. Yeah. Um, I was going to go blacksmith. Uh, I was going to go wolf for leaf. So yeah. It, Even better. I think Aaron, more than any of the other characters, is shown as having just two vastly different poles that he's being pulled between. And he's trying to figure out which path he wants to go. And he sees it as a very strict dichotomy between the two. And it doesn't help at all that he is forced to murder two people in self-defense. You keep referring to it as murder. I keep referring to it as killing them in self-defense. Allegedly murder? Killing in self-defense is definitely more accurate. But he's kind of beat up over it. Yeah, it's he. They get accosted by white cloaks. Elias and the wolves are on the run. He and Egwene are trying to hide. So far, we've seen the white cloaks only be antagonistic to any of the main characters. And they're in a setting out in the middle of nowhere where we know at this point that Egwene can channel. The white cloaks are, have been referred to as people who will hunt and kill people who can channel. Heron is starting to show things with the wolves that even the avowed good guys are probably going to be looking at them sideways. So yeah, they're in fear for their life. It's the middle of the night. They're trying to hide. Elias and the wolves are carrying the white cloaks. They're attacking the horses, trying to get the white cloaks to leave them alone. And a couple of white cloaks find where Gwen and Perrin are hiding. And they're sitting there trying to figure out how to get out of it. And some of the wolves come to their defense. And Hopper, one of the wolves Perrin has had the closest bond to, he jumps out of the darkness and kills one of them. It's speared or lanced by another white cloak. And it infuriates Perrin. He just loses touch with himself for a bit and kills a couple of white cloaks that were trying to capture him and old Egwene. He gets caught up in Hopper's sort of battle rage, too. The uh, yeah. the telepathic wolf thing is much more of a drawback, just like when people sometimes first channel the one power. And we don't realize that he killed anybody at this point. Oh, at the time it happens, he feels Hopper. He feels Hopper attack the white cloak. He feels Hopper's death, and then it cuts to after he's been captured, and then it is later revealed that he killed a couple of them. And now it becomes a case of was it self defense? Was it murder? The white cloaks obviously don't care if it was self-defense. He killed white cloaks, therefore he is guilty. And the only people who'd ever kill white cloaks are dark friends. So therefore he's obviously a dark friend. Yeah, I mean, just look at his eyes. Exactly. And he's uh, hanging around with a channeler. <laughs> Which they don't realize. Um, they never learned that Egwene and Channel is otherwise... They basically were like, hey, you two are dark friends, or at least Perrin's a dark friend. We're going to question him, which is basically torture him until he confesses to everything we want him to confess to. Egwene might be able to go free because the guy leading the White Cloak group is actually one of the more moderate leaders they have, despite being the closest thing to a zealot uh, that you meet in the first book. His subordinates have more zealotry than he shows. He seems a bit more wise to the workings and realities of the world as being General Bornhold. And also understanding of, like, maybe these are just two kids that randomly were out there and yeah. knowing how his white cloaks might treat people who looked like them. Yeah, but the fact that he killed two white cloaks means that he has to be killed. And sorry, that's just the way it is, Perrin. <laughs> and Perrin is dealing with, you know, it's something that I don't think is captured well in a lot of media, especially television and playing D&D or video games, where... There is an expectation that people working for the opposition 
are valid targets. You know, the guard of a prison, the random mercenary soldier. It's like, oh, they're the enemy. You can kill them and not feel bad about it. And that is not what Jordan does here. Herod kills two people, and he is torn up about it. In so much other media, you would have this be just like one moment among many where the main character sort of, you know, he kills the bad guy and never mentions it again. That's a good point. And I mean, it's not even just he killed the bad guy. The bad guys just killed a wolf, basically a dog in front of him. They killed his friend and a dog right in front of him, and he got instant revenge. So he's John Wick. I mean, I wasn't going to bring Keanu Reeves back into it so soon, but yeah. I mean, if you want a person who's just torn between two sides, he is both going off the Bill and Ted route or the John Wick route. <laughs> I don't know Aaron how we got there. He doesn't know which Keanu he wants to be. And in reality, he's, he's the vampire. <laughs> I was going to say, we know which direction that uh, Sanderson took him. He became Neo. Heron's whole arc is just different movies and roles of Keanu Reeves. I think speed will be a hard one to tie in. <laughs> oh, I'm thinking. But as we were saying, as you were saying as well, it, it is treating this moment as if it was real. It is not just brushing it off as the good guy killing a couple bad guys. It is a person killing people and dealing with ramifications of that. And I think that is part of why I didn't necessarily bond to Perrin's character as much in the first book, because when I was reading it, I was still so steeped in modern pop culture uh, representations of that kind of conflict, where it's like, why would Perrin feel bad about this? He killed the bad guys. That's what the heroes do. And it's not until I grew up a bit more and got exposure to more of the real world that I kind of connected more with Perrin. Yeah, it also goes against this trope and fantasy of like, you're in a bar, somebody starts a bar fight, and then like definitely a few people die in the bar fight that were not intended to, but they never get mentioned again. Yeah. It it is a problem I have with a lot of stuff where it's, you know, what about faceless guard number three's daughter? Does anyone care? <laughs> <laughs> what about the children? Which actually I didn't put it into the outline for the episode, but it ties into something I was thinking of that I think Jordan did better than anyone else I've seen. And it is, he has every character have a life that we just get a small glimpse of. The boys catch a ride in the back of a cart from a guy who has his own internal beef going with someone else's in the area who was consorting with unsavory folk, including a Merge at one point. And it's like, oh yeah, this guy is probably an upstanding member of the community. He has a wife. He's looking out for the kids. He's obviously opposed to people who would be more drawn towards the Dark One and becoming Dark Friends. You have Elias, who's set up with this whole intricate backstory. He knows the Tinkers. The Tinkers know his backstory. They almost mention what some of his backstory is, and he shuts it down and derails, sidetracks the conversation, and Parent doesn't dig into what that could have been. And you just have little things like that happen, where it's just like, oh, hey, all these NPCs... Gaming terms, you know, non-player characters, they mean all the non-main characters of the series are treated as if they have weight and purpose and a life. And I think that's what makes him killing the White Cloaks land on rereads. Because once you're truly tied into the world as being a real world, every person that dies is a person and not just faceless guard number two. I mean, we've been talking about a lot of high-level philosophy about how Perrin was talking to the wolves and that that kind of sits next to the uh this meditation technique of the flame and the void that rand uses um so if Perrin if rand had ever taught Perrin how to summon the flame and the void he would have been a very different character um so in in meditation there's this notion of single point meditations um which is where a mindfulness practitioner just kind of focuses on one body aspect and directs their attention to it. And anytime the attention leaves that aspect, uh, you kind of just gently direct it back like a wayward puppy. So the void that Rand slips into, this sort of detached bubble where nothing can really get to him, uh, pain slides off, emotion slides off, 
that is a real thing. That is a meditative state you can get into. And people who meditate regularly can just slide into that state kind of at will. The flame is something a little different. The flame is something more akin to the philosophical tool of Stoicism. So in Stoicism, the Stoicism tool is to be able to be presented with something that invokes emotion in you and just say, I'm not going to feel anything. This is the best of all possible worlds, and so if that happened, that happened, and I'm going to deal with it, and the less time I spend emoting about it, the happier I'm going to be. So Rand doesn't exactly do it that way, but what he does do is he feeds all of his emotions and uh, negative thoughts, basically anything that goes through his mind, he feeds it into this flame, and uh, this helps him transition into the void. Am I reading that the same way you did? Yeah. And it was a technique taught to him by Tam for learning archery. And it's, you know, focus everything that's in your head into the flame, let the flame burn it away, be empty, focus on your task. And it's just sort of like Bruce Lee with, you know, be like water. Water takes whatever shape it is. Don't force yourself into the situation, react to it, be empty and just exist in that state and let that be your, you know, how you're focusing on your target and not being distracted by anything. And then when Land starts teaching Rand the sword techniques, how to use the sword, he was given Tam's sword. He starts talking about basically the flame in the void and is surprised that Rand already knows about it. And it definitely confirms to Land that it was Tam's sword and it's a Heronmark blade, which is a blade of a, a blade master. And the technique that Tam was teaching Rand to shoot with is the same technique the blade masters use for their sword techniques and training. So it definitely confirms to Lan that uh, Tam was way more than he was letting on. <laughs> it's mentioned that the Flame and the Void win an archery contest for uh, for Tam every year. But as you were saying, with the single point meditation technique, I've done some similar stuff in martial arts, where instead of it being a focus on an external thing, you focus on an internal. And for us to be like, okay, I want you to close your eyes, stand there, and focus on your right hand, specifically the knuckles on your right hand. And you just try to center like all of your thoughts, all of your feelings, mute every other aspect of reality for yourself, except for those knuckles. And then say, okay, not throw a punch. And the difference between how you were punching before you did that and how you punched after you did that was noticeable. And it just let you channel all of your unconscious when you throw a punch effectively it is a full body thing you're pushing off with your feet you're rotating through the hips you're rotating through the shoulders and the core and it's all focusing at the the point of the punch and if you are not centered and honed into that one specific thing you can lose some effectiveness you can have extraneous motion you can be less connected as you're going through the motion Whereas somebody like Mike Tyson is 100% invested himself into each and every punch and, like, uses this as a devastating weapon. Yeah. And it was interesting because I had not put it into the... Because for the way it was put it in the first book, it is the you go to the flame in the void during a fight or during an archery competition or during sword practice. And as we see towards the end of the book, a very unrecognizable or abstracted, a very abstracted representation of the flame of the void happening when Rand is unknowingly reaching for the for the one power. And that becomes how he starts getting into the meditative state necessary for channeling. But as you were saying, like as he starts putting all of his emotions and stuff into that, he lives in that space a lot more. And it becomes much more of how he starts interacting in the world in that meditative, concentrated state as opposed to just Which, uh, this was remarkable to me. So when I was growing up, I was kind of raised in generic slash random flavors of Christianity, ending up in like Pentecostal Christianity. So I did not have a super positive view of religious practices. So when I started doing the mindfulness meditation thing, it had nothing like the meditation itself definitely felt different than what I had done before. 
but what was remarkable was my ability to remain clear-headed and disconnected from, uh, like, basically present in the moment and fully considering everything, rather than uh, just kind of going on autopilot. And as I practiced more, I started being able to bring that into my daily life a little more. So the way Robert Jordan describes that is, in my view as a meditator, which I'm, you know, a journeyman at best, yeah, it's an accurate description of how it feels to have meditations start affecting you every day. It would be interesting to compare and contrast with some other mindfulness techniques, because I do think that he takes it a different direction than what I've learned about mindfulness meditation, and that it's less being aware of your emotions or aware of your thoughts and letting them go, and more eliminating thoughts and emotions as much as possible to be focused and empty. So... The focused and empty goal is at the end of a very long period of listening to stuff go by. Yeah, I, I think my interpretation of it is it is a more active, there's more intentionality to the reaching emptiness. And it's instead of you passively watching things go by, you are actively feeding everything into the flame. And I, don't know, I just wonder how that aspect, at least my interpretation of that aspect, alters how the journey and result of the meditation is achieved yeah there's there's also things like uh visualization techniques that people apparently use to sort of guide their life toward a goal that guy napoleon hill got rich writing this book think and grow rich which is all about building a picture of who you would like to be as a person and how much money and all this stuff and then putting that picture on your wall and looking at it every day so I guess this is the place to bring it up. Um, I have a lot of trouble imagining the flame in the void as a concept because I have uh, aphantasia, which is the inability to create mental imagery. I can remember things I have seen in a vague abstract sense, and it's almost like I'm looking at them again. But if I like close my eyes and try to imagine an apple, it's just a black void with the concept of an apple, but not the image of an apple. And there are varying degrees of how well you are able to do stuff. And I've talked to a couple of engineers I know. I'm like, close your eyes, picture an apple. What do you see? And they're like, oh, yeah, it's a perfect 3D representation of an apple. I can change the color. I can make it float. I can make it rotate. And I'm sitting there going, the word apple has a concept attached. And that's as close as I get. So the actual image, like imagine a flame in your head and push everything to it, just doesn't actually work. So you want to know what's crazy? There's this, uh, it's a physics book. So full disclosure, I had a crazy, uh, like consciousness science, uh, roommate and friend in college. And he showed me some crazy stuff. One of them was a meditation from a grad level physics book that was an exercise that was designed to instantiate the spark of being able to visualize stuff in your consciousness i.e. it is a trained ability, and I didn't really do it before then. Now, some people may be just, like, constitutionally incapable of this thing. Uh, I do know one other guy, and he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Actually, no, he's the smartest person I've ever met. Uh, he can't, he doesn't form any kind of images uh, in his head. Yeah, it's something I had not really heard anything about. Apparently, it was mentioned back in the late, late 1800s, turn of the century, 1900s. Uh, but it's starting to be more studies now into just how capable people are of forming mental images. And it, know, it's just like people with perfect pitch who they just know where a note is. They hear it and it, they just have a sense of it. And other people are tone deaf and cannot for the life of you, know, you play a C sharp and they just hear a noise in that frame uh in that wavelength and it doesn't hit them the same way they can't make that connection that's weird brains are a lot more complicated than uh i really think which goes back to what we were talking about with the wolf aspect and the um quaaludes <laughs> qualia yeah, but it's kind of like the um the, the wolves and the way they talk and the way they think is very much that visual imagery and it is a representation of them just being in the moment and being in real life which again can't really relate to so the idea that it's the, oh, hey, it's these couple of words makes their name, but it's all this extra stuff, that works for me, but the visualization of it doesn't. 
there are different levels of it that I've seen with just how much detail is there, how much reality is the image and how abstracted it becomes. Do you see an apple on a tree with a vivid background or do you see an apple floating in space or do you see a 2D picture of an apple or do you see the word apple or do you see nothing? But I was also wondering if that level of mental imagery affects how people read the Wheel of Time. Because Robert Jordan goes super in-depth on describing the cut of people's clothing, the fabric it's made out of, the colors, the decorations in a room. And for me, all this information just gets sorted into word lists. I don't have to spend the mental for I don't have to spend the mental energy to create these environments and these clothes in my head. So I able to fly through large sets of description without it bogging me down. I wonder if that affects people differently. That makes me wonder. When you read through all that, if one of those details is relevant later, do you have to go back and look for it? Or do you sort does it click into place? For that type of stuff, like no, unless the unless it was intentionally pointed out in the text and had unusual attention brought to it for the callback to hit. Otherwise it just goes into the background noise. I think it's one of the reasons I can reread books so many times without losing interest in them is because I'm constantly updating the little tidbits that I just didn't add the first time through. But like that level of, hey, this thing doesn't add up to that thing sticks way more with people's thoughts and what they've said or do, whereas the environment and dress and garb just don't affect me. Yeah, so that's one thing. Once As we expand the uh, listenership of the podcast, I am curious to see how people react, how's, how people's reactions to the large descriptions that are used and the repetition of description and how people view that in the series and then how well they are at forming mental imagery. I think there's a basis of a research paper in there somewhere if I ever decide to go that route. So there is a part of my brain that definitely treats long flowing descriptions of a place as like the lorem ipsum of a chapter. It's like, I just totally gloss over it. I don't even file it away in a factual place. I've read so many descriptions of so many things that I briefly note like color and vibe. But other than that, not a lot of it gets through. And if I read later about some detail that is a surprise to me as a reader, uh, I'm the kind of person who will have to go back and like, did it actually say that the sky was green back there? What is this? And to be fair, like, I, I generally don't have to go back for them. I just sort of accept them at the time. But as I said, I do reread stuff a lot, so I will look out for it more in the next read through. And I think that's one of the more rewarding aspects of rereading The Wheel of Time is Jordan constantly is putting stuff in those little background bits. And he has a couple of running jokes that he never gives you the punchline for because the punchline is just piecing together a couple of small details from multiple character POVs and multiple history drops to go, oh, that's what's happening in the scene. That's really funny. No one ever told me the joke. And there is a perfect example of that in like book four that I'll get to at some point when we get to book four, I guess. I'm trying to think of any like good early book example jokes and stuff. But the more I think about and read The Wheel of Time, the more I realize it's this dude and his wife just set out to tell the world the the craziest story they could imagine, pretty much. And they kind of accomplished it. So we've got a bit all over the place, but as we were talking about with Perrin and Egwene earlier, when they first meet up with Elias, they're out on their own. They've just been separated from the group. Perrin has been quote unquote leading and Egwene's forced him to take turns on Bella because he's trying to get her to ride the whole time. She's like, no, that's dumb. We'll get tired too. I don't, you know, I'm not used to riding all the time either. We just both need brakes on the horse. Let's ride. And then when they finally meet up with Elias, they smell they smell a campfire going. And Perrin is like, hey, Egwene, you need to stay here. I'm going to go check it out. And she doesn't object. And he can't figure out why. And it's the, oh, hey, it's because from Egwene's point of view and what she's been thinking and what she was known of her character, she's like, yeah, Perrin is a large, intimidating guy. He has spent more time in the woods than I have, so he's quieter than I am. If you're going to have someone go crash in on a group of strangers in the middle of nowhere, sending the giant blacksmith, probably a better idea than sending the 17-year-old, 16-year-old girl 
And she realizes this, and that's why she agrees to Perrin. Whereas when he was, he's thinking, he's just like, oh yeah, I'm the guy, I have to go do this to be protective. Which is the exact same thought he was putting into riding the horse. And he doesn't know why Egwene is going to accept one and not the other. And it's that kind of like piecing together people's actions from later books and going back to the earlier books and be like, oh, hey, here's what the character didn't get. Here's why they didn't get it. The reason you can do that is because he's pretty consistent. He must have had just like spreadsheets upon spreadsheets in his head of this stuff. And I think as he was doing it, like he chose which point of view you were getting the scene from for a reason. And so he was with a lot of the scenes, they could have been written from another character's point of view. And so he had to have a good idea of what every character was thinking and feeling and the reasons they had for their actions going into each scene. So he would know which character he needed to have be the point of view character. And as I was saying, with all the characters, and even the small bit characters having their own lives and stuff, I think he put that into everything he wrote of just the, hey, here's, here's who this person is. Here's what they're thinking in the moment. Here are their goals and ambitions. Here's what they're trying to do. And he just lets them interact. I got to tell you, uh, as an author, that is kind of the legitimate way to do it. Because if you don't define those things, then you don't really have a character. And you can definitely go too far and spend too much time building up a character who doesn't matter. And their part in the story does not justify overinvestment. But having an idea of each character's person in your head is helpful for making them feel real. I recommend that anyone who wants to be a DM or GM or storyteller in a role-playing game should read The Wheel of Time with that as a focus of the read. It helps you build out a realistic setting so well by just incorporating those little you know, who, what, when, where, why for every person. I, I will say, don't try to keep up with every character in The Wheel of Time. Uh, there are like 3,000 of them who are named. It's fine to stick with the main few on your first or second, third read. And it's just as you spend more time in the books, so like a side character can really catch your interest, you can really like them. Or a side characters who are really good at playing off of one of the main POV characters. That's how I really got into understanding more of what was going on in the world. It was like, hey, I like this character's interactions with one of the main cast. What makes them so fun? And then it's tracing out how they interact with other NPCs, and you see them like in backgrounds of scenes and stuff who with characters that you don't normally interact with. And you can still put together what's going on based on your knowledge that the book is not currently giving you. It's a giant puzzle of interpersonal relations and history and psychology. I find fun. Once you take this Qualia thing on, you can also think about there was this guy named uh, Wittgenstein, and he talked about like your world is your language. That's why the end of the book is so freaking confusing, uh, is because Rand doesn't have appropriate language for a lot of the stuff he's experiencing. Honestly, yes. Uh, I think that is 100% why the end of the book is so confusing, because we only get we only get to see what Rand sees and how Rand sees it. And we can extrapolate how things actually are based on that. But I think the fact that Rand does not understand what's happening and cannot contextualize what's happening leads to the reader sharing the same confusion because our world is being presented through Rand's internal monologue and internal language. And when he loses the words capable of describing what's happening, we lose it. Yeah, then his the focus of his attention is just on whatever his attention is forced to be on in the middle of his crazy trip. for joining us to talk about Robert Jordan's epic The Wheel of Time. Email your comments and questions to nerds at wheelthought.com or visit us on the web at wheelthought.com. Thoughts on the Wheel was reported, edited, and produced by David Arnold and James McTice. Intro music was Cinematic Time Lapse by Lexit Music, and outro music is Inspiring Cinematic Asia, also by Lexit Music. The Wheel of Time copyright is held from 1990 to present by the Bandersnatch Group Incorporated. 